Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. From Pasadena, California, this is a show about building a community for all and how we make our neighborhoods our home. On this special holiday episode, I'm proud to welcome author and historian Pamela McCall. On December 23, 1823, a poem entitled Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas was published in the Sentinel newspaper in Troy, New York. Later attributed to Clement Clark Moore, the poem we know today as Twas the Night Before Christmas has been called arguably the best-known verses ever written by an American. In celebration of the poem's bicentennial, historian Pamela McColl spent 10 years researching the poem and its many forms for her 2022 book, Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem. Like Moore, who was a writer and scholar, Pamela has an interesting background that we discussed during our conversation. She studied art and history and did graduate work in cultural history before working as a corporate art consultant. From there, she launched an art and book publication company and made headlines for her stance against tobacco use. While Pamela is not local, two local connections brought us together. Christine Johnson of San Marino Toy and Bookshop referred Pamela to the podcast, and I can't thank Christine enough for the introduction. The second is that the Huntington Library holds one of only four fair copies of the poem, that being a copy handwritten out and signed by Moore. Three are in museums, whereas the fourth is privately held, having been sold at auction in 2006 for $280,000. In this conversation, Pamela and I talk about her history and tobacco advocacy work and dive into the poem and its meaning for the holiday season. Before we get started, this episode experienced some technical difficulties. Pamela handled it like a professional, so a big thank you to her for her patience and understanding. So, without further delay, my conversation with author Pamela McCall. Pamela, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Well, to get us started, can you share a little bit about your background as you live in Ohio, but you're from Canada? Well, I work in Ohio. I have for 20 years. I'm a Canadian, but I just enjoy working in America. I, I appreciate your entrepreneurial spirit. I think that Americans say yes 10 times faster than a Canadian. So in business, that comes in handy. Based on your career, who are some of your early mentors that were especially important to you and why? Were they family, academic, literary? Well, I came at this as a publisher of a cookbook. And I, I, I'd I, been an art consultant and I did a cookbook because I found a really beautiful picture of a salmon and I decided to do a salmon cookbook. There hadn't been one and I had enormous success with it. I sold 30,000 copies in the first month that it came into print. And my mentors would have been some journalists who really decided to take it upon themselves to help me out and get me going in publishing. So I would have to say it was really Alan Fotheringham of Maclean's magazine. He decided when I wrote this cookbook, I went to his birthday party. He said, what are you up to these days? And I said, I just wrote a cookbook. And he put me on the back cover of Maclean's magazine, which is the equivalent of Time magazine in Canada, you know, the United States Time magazine. And uh, he espoused my entrepreneurship and it took off and I, it went crazy. <laughs> Thanks. So my mentors would certainly be a couple of journalists who kind of decided to help me out and get me going. Well, you attended the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, majoring in North American history and art history. And then you studied theater history and attended the National Theater School of Canada. So what did you want to do for a career originally? Well, I wanted to work in film. I actually had thought even of going to Berkeley and I 
wanted to work in film, but I decided to work as an art consultant. So for 25 years, I was a corporate art consultant and I bought art for governments and hospitals and uh, private businesses. And I loved it. Um, but I had originally set out, as you mentioned, my background, I went to Queen's University and started history and then uh, went to U of M. And then I went to uh, the National Theatre School in Montreal. And then I went to Europe and studied um, theatre design and theatre history and then came back to Vancouver. And the film industry was just starting up, you know, really taking off in Vancouver. And I got going in a junior film company, but I just decided because of the hours and everything else to, you know, go into something more I guess, solid and, and uh, nine to five when our consulting certainly was that. Well, you think you've addressed this question, but I wanted to mention it because you worked for an agent uh, as an agent for provisions for teams for the Vancouver Olympics, toured with Canadian artist Ted Harrison, published posters of the Expo 86. And you mentioned your book, uh, British Columbia Salmon Celebration of Paintings and Cookeries. So it's amazing that from all that, you went into publishing eventually. I just saw this good opportunity with the salmon. We, you know, we're British Columbia, one of the big salmon capitals of the world. And there, was, there wasn't a salmon cookbook. And so I kind of saw it like I'm very entrepreneurial. So I saw this, this opportunity um, and I took it. And then I did some other publications. I did a history of Whistler, the ski resort. And I also did a book for the um, forest industry, Pacific, uh, Pacific Spirit. And uh, I just really picked projects that I thought I... I could do something with corporately, but also that I had an interest in. And I think that also had a social message. So beso- beside the cookbook, the books I worked on had a very specific marketing program and, and something that really interested me. You know, So I have, I've only published probably 20 works and I've written two or three myself, but uh, I've really been selective of what I published. Before we get into the poem, uh, it's history and your book. You have a very personal connection to Twas the Night because your father gave you a 1954 edition illustrated by Florence Sarah Winship. So was this your first interest in the poem? I was introduced to the poem by my father when I was very young, so five, four or five in there, and uh, such like Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt read this poem when he was four years of age, and then he turned around and read it to his children and his grandchildren. His copy of the Darley edition is in Sagamore Hill in his private library. Um, and I, too, you know, read it at the age of four and, and enjoyed reading it my entire adult life and then sharing it with my children and my granddaughter, who's two. I just read it to her and we filmed me reading Twas the Night Before Christmas to my granddaughter for posterity. So that's really fun to see her respond to it. And I know you're a father. You've probably read it to your children. I always say that the reason the poem has turned 200 and, and is so, st- you know, loved still is that it is tied into this family tradition of gathering together to read it. And it's often read to a young child by a parent or grandparent. So it's tied into love and memory and nostalgia of Christmas. So, yes, I've had it my whole life. And it's just been a poem that I loved and always read. And it wasn't until 2012 that I really decided to work on it and publish it. If you go to any bookstore or library, there are so many illustrated copies of it because it's in the public domain, which is kind of interesting. I didn't realize that. So what is the status of the poem now? Well, it's been printed about 2,500 times. It's considered to be the most republished, re-illustrated work in the Library of English Literature. And it, every year, new editions come out. Um, but it's also been adapted to film. It's been adapted to plays and, and theatrical productions. I know Cirque du Soleil is touring with Toise. They've been doing that for a few years. It's a, it's a theatrical Cirque du Soleil production based on Toise the Night Before Christmas. I saw it in Boston last year, and uh, 
and there's ballets and there's but there's also I mean the poem is on tea towels it's on ornaments uh, it's I mean it's in so many different formats and it also is uh, has been spoofed you know and, and adapted and I mean it's just so it, there's so many versions of twas so beyond the 2500 copies in book form um you know traditional you know publications of this poem there are so many others and there's also all these wonderful recordings of people who've read it one of my favorite is prince charles now king charles uh, a couple of years ago for the actors benevolent fund he and camilla and judy dench and and a whole cast of daniel craig whole cast of people um read it out loud and you can see that on youtube it's a really fun edition uh, i don't think you've ever seen king charles as jolly as when he's reading this poem it's it's really something i think they may have all had a glass of sherry because they really get into it but it's it's really fun well in rereading the poem it has become the symbol and definition of the christmas holiday and his descriptions are what we think of as christmas as kind of what we idolize as, as christmas uh, even more so than kind of the Charles Dickens Christmas story. Why do you think that the image of Santa has endured over 200 years? Well, he actually goes back to the Roman Empire because it's St. Nicholas, you know, the legend of St. Nicholas in the third century of the Roman Empire when St. Nicholas uh, learns of a family and the girls are going to be sold into slavery because they don't have dowries. And so he visits the home at night and throws gold, gold through the windows, um, anonymously giving and he goes the first night and delivers the gold. And then the second night, the father stays up to see who this generous person is who's delivering gold through the windows. And he discovers it, St. Nicholas. And he tells the world, of course, and that's how we have this legend. So this character of benevolence and kindness and generosity of spirit and giving anonymously comes from the third century all through Western culture. And then it comes across the ocean, of course, into America. Um, very much with the help of Washington Irving and uh, John Pintard and Julian Verplank, some knickerbockers in, in New York who decided to capture the essence of St. Nicholas. And they actually wanted to make him patron saint of America. Um, they didn't get that far. I think they got him to be the patron saint of New York. <laughs> but so the legend of St. Nicholas comes along. And it's just this wonderful character who symbolizes goodness and kindness and generosity and and that's to answer your question really why he survived and is so well loved the character is considered to be the most recognized character in all of english literature um he certainly outsells ronald mcdonald he certainly outsells other characters so you know he's a very influential character as well and uh i find it really interesting that um some people have a problem with santa claus in the 21st century i mean the girl guides just banned they put a memo out that they weren't allowed, they're allowing their girl guys to attend the Santa Claus parade because he's a religious character in their minds. Well, they have it completely wrong. The Supreme Court of America decided in the 1980s that Santa Claus is an elf. Santa Claus is a secular character, and he's been entwined in American culture for two centuries, and he's allowed in schools, and he's allowed in parades, and it's all good. And it's been read from the White House since 1953 by the First Lady, so... You know, I think the girl guides have got off base on that one. Um, and I did write a letter outlining my concern that they've uh, they've uh, made a mistake. And that I I truly believe because I'm Celtic that if you start banning elves, you're gonna you're gonna have some problems. You just elves are good, right? Well, let's like elves because uh, yeah, you would want to unleash a whole bunch of angry elves at yourself. <laughs> so 
I defend Santa Claus all the time. And I think, uh, you know, he has a real role to play. And children need to have this magical thinking and creative ideas and, and love characters they can learn love through. You know, it's like Winnie the Pooh. Like, you don't have to believe he's a real bear to learn love from Winnie the Pooh. So it's, or Snoopy or any of these other great characters. They're very important to children to develop um, you know, an understanding of feelings and relationships and, and some of our Western values, which I think is really important. I'm at a point where my, my, my oldest is nine years old. And I think she just realized that the tooth fairy was me and we're trying to protect her younger siblings so that they can hold on to the magic a little bit longer. And I know it's kind of a silly thing for the tooth fairy, but it, it kind of goes into the larger conversation about that children need magic in their lives and they need this, this, this role models that show kindness and show a gentleness because those are such, such important qualities that they need to embody as they grow up and become adults themselves. And I think it starts at a very early age and with this poem and then a lot of other different sources. And I'm sorry to hear that Santa Claus was somewhat banned, but on this podcast, I've had uh, Marla Frazee who's a child illustrator and author as well. And she's one of her books has been on the, on the naughty list uh, on a group in, I think in Florida because of depictions that she had. And it's, it's a sad state both on the right and the left seeing books and topics withdrawn from the public when we need more of those kind of uh, topics and books and poems and every other kind of art that uh, unfortunately is is finding a harder place to exist in, in the in the culture. Right. I mean, I think it has to be freedom of expression, freedom of religious expression as well. Um, I think, you know, even if Santa Claus wasn't a secular character, there's the federal uh, laws in America right now for buildings allow this poem and Santa Claus and religious items if it is if it enhances the morale of the individuals working in the building. It's really interesting. I pulled this document and I thought that was really great. Um, it really gets down to if it really supports people's morale and, and, a, and a happy workplace, then it should be welcomed. And I think, you know, this is idea of tolerance and, and this, this book has been, you know, published in every major language, including Yiddish. I mean, you know, it's loved the world over and it is about benevolence and kindness. I mean, it's not a great big lessons. I mean, lesson poem it doesn't have like some great overriding. It's just love and kindness and fun and excitement. And but as you said, it's creative thinking. And I cannot imagine the world in childhood, especially without creative thinking. You know, I mean, yes, Snoopy is a dog, but he's a dog that we love, and you don't have. To believe there's really Snoopy to love Snoopy. I mean, this is the whole thing, right? It's creative thought, you know, and, and it's so important to get through life, to be able to have hope and belief and faith, um, but also to have creative thought. And like you said with the tooth fairy, I mean, the essence of the tooth fairy, it's your love of your child to do that. But this tooth fairy can still live on in creative thought. I mean, she didn't, I mean, yes, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm all for the tooth fairy. I'm all for all of these things. I think it adds such an element to life. I mean, I've lived a very, you know, artistic life and I, and I love art and I just can't imagine the world without that, especially childhood. I, I don't think I would have done very well without Charlotte's web and everything else in my life. They were my friends. I, you know, I love books. I, I always have. And I think it's very important. My granddaughters too. And 
I've given her so many books that her father, who's a carpenter, had to build an entire wall of bookshelves in her nursery. So she wakes up every day from her from her sleep and from her nap, and she's staring at a wall full of books that face out at her. I mean, she's, you know, just a, an engaged child in reading at the age of two because she has these wonderful characters like Elmo and everybody else in her life, right? It's important. It's really important. One thing that I've thought about as a parent is that I want my kids to have a sense of wonder about the world. And I need to do a better job showing that to them. But I think that's such a critical idea of just being just overwhelmed in a very positive way about all that's around them. Because I think you can go into a very dark place very quickly, you know, as you kind of get older. And I think the more that becomes more important that as adults, we still believe in that sense of wonder that the world is an incredible place. And a poetic way, a poetic way of looking at the world versus a linear. So I always sort of think it's like a gray world or you color your world with education and creative thought. So you can live in bright, you know, color if you have these wonderful characters and you have great books around you and, and an artistic sort of education so that you can, you know, I think creative thinking is a, you know, fundamental um, in education so that you can create yourself out of problems and, and have this very colorful life. You know, I think it's really, really important. And I think all of these great characters stay with me. And as someone said, I think it was David Paul Kirkpatrick, the former president of Touchstone Films and Disney. And he was, um, he's a really big fan of my book, which I was thrilled to get a great endorsement from him last year. And, and, uh, he said, you know, the characters, yes, you may grow out of the tooth fairy and the character, but the love stays, the lessons, the love stays. And, and that's so important, right? That's what this is all about. And, and certainly I know Disney would have agreed with him, you know? Um, so I think very, very important to have all of this. And uh, I mean, Snoopy's our family mascot, Snoopy's in every single birth and death. So, Hey, I mean, I'm live, I live in this world of great characters. And I mean, some people will say, you know, I don't want to do the Santa Claus things. I don't want to lie to my children. This is not lying to children. This is creative thought. And the best advice I think people can take is from some psychologists who I've talked to about this issue and say, let them discover all of this on their own. They will work it through like so many other things we learn in life. They will come to their own appreciation of Santa and they'll come to the appreciation of loving parents who provided this wonderful thing for them, like you with Tooth, the Tooth Fairy. They'll come to that on their own, in their own way. It's the very best way to approach this and not to, you know, tell them anything other than what you know they're ready to understand and then they will develop it in their own way and um i certainly in my own experience i mean i i mean look at you know nc wyeth i'm very very fond of nc wyeth's work and he's in my book quite predominantly but the fam the wyeth family were engaged in christmas i mean andrew wyeth and jamie wyeth they were all running around in santa claus i was on the roof with jingle bells their entire lives <laughs> they really embraced christmas and uh, santa so you know, a lot of families carry this through, right? And look at all the Santa Clauses in the world. There's, I mean, I met one yesterday. There's, there's, there's a huge convention of Santa Clauses taking place in Texas this year. I think there's 750 showing up. These are men in their, you know, 50s and 60s and 70s who embrace it and share it. So, you know, anyway, that's, um, that's Santa, this great character. Well, in 2012, you made waves because you published an edition of Twas the Night and removed the references to smoking so that children don't see Santa as a pipe smoker. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. How did you get involved with the anti-smoking advocacy end of this? 
Well, I was working on um, tobacco drug prevention as um, just as my not-for-profit part of my life, uh, my charitable work. And I was working on a campaign with Stanton Glantz out of the University of Southern California on smoke-free movies. And I was uh, involved in trying to get political support for that and, and raise public awareness of it. And I just started publishing, I guess about 10 years before, different things. And I thought, I wonder if I could publish something here, you know, get some awareness up for this whole, that we haven't finished our job on drug prevention and tobacco prevention. We need There's still things we need to do to protect kids from predatory industries. And so I went to the library and I was looking at books and, you know, there were smoking leprechauns and smoking, smoking rabbits and the three little bears were smoking, right, over Goldilocks. And there were all these smoking characters. And I was going, what am I going to do? And then... And then I pulled out a Santa Claus, you know, Twas Night for Christmas, and I went, oh, right, Eureka, Santa Claus smokes, and he has a pipe with a wreath of smoke that encircles his head. Like, he's the perfect one to take on, right? So I took out all these books. I went running into Barnes & Nobles, looking through all the books to see if anybody had ever done this, you know, make Santa Claus go smoke-free, and uh, I couldn't find anybody. So I quickly got this organized, and I brought out a smoke-free edition of Twas Night for Christmas. And it was September, well, well before Christmas. And I got a phone call from a radio station and they woke me up at 5.30 in the morning because I was on the, on the West Coast and they were on the East Coast. And they said, have you seen the cover of the National Post newspaper, the biggest newspaper in Canada? And I said, nope, I have not. And they said, you're page one and page two. And I went, oh, what did I do? <laughs> what have I done now? And it was a smoking story. Um, they did a full page front cover story on my smoke-free Santa because someone um, at the American Library Association had taken upon themselves to decide that what I had done was an act of literary vandalism and was disturbing and disgusting and a few other words they chose to use and hurl at my direction. And that was so controversial that they decided to write this piece. And so the next thing I knew, the New York Post called me and then AP, and then everybody. And then Stephen Colbert, Stephen Colbert did a spoof on my book and Smoke Free. I think he called me a Nazi. And then Barbara Walters got hold of it on The View. And then NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams did as a news story, which was pretty crazy. And then it went all over the world. It went to India and Bombay, and it went to Australia, and into the UK, and circled back to America. And... Uh, it went absolutely crazy on how many people thought that it was an act of censorship. And it wasn't. It was an edit. And I was doing an interview out of NPR out of L.A. And uh, it was a discussion with the woman at the ALA who had taken me on. And she called me a literary vandal on air. And I got a call from a lawyer in Cincinnati. And he said, I'm one of the biggest copyright lawyers in the country. And I'm going to take them on. And I'm going to make them write a retraction. Because that was obscene. This book, if you were to go on online on Amazon and Google it, there's 1,700 smoking versions available within two seconds. So how is that censorship if you can still get, should you choose to get a smoke, smoking Santa, you can go get one. Nobody's burning books. Nobody's banning books. So he did, and they did have to write a retraction. So um, it was uh, a really fun project. You know, I got hate mail. I got... Someone hit me over the head with my own book one day at a library. <laughs> like People just got so um, excited about this idea. I stand by what I did. 
because of the Master Settlement Agreement of 1998, which made Joe Camel illegal. It was Bill Clinton's administration who said, based on our research, these cartoon characters smoking, uh, in, they sympathize children towards tobacco products. So it's not like you're going to see a smoking Santa and run out and become a smoker. But it goes towards sympathizing them towards the product, and it's not okay. So before we get into your book, Clement Clark Moore is considered the author, and there's been some controversy about that, but most people don't know anything about him. So can you share some insights into his life so we can get a fuller picture of who he was and why he wrote the poem? Sure. I uh, published my Smoke Free Edition, and then I was invited to a mock trial in Troy, New York, where they do a theatrical production on who wrote this poem. They have the Henry Livingston the second family and lawyers and then they have the clemency more side and they debate about it and it's really this controversy because there's so little known about Moore and his family and this poem it's so sad that he didn't write a diary to the last five years of his life because then we'd know for sure but i was able to piece together his life from different works he was a really interesting man in that he was very very well educated out of columbia university he was the valedictorian of his class from 1794. And he went on to marry and have nine children. He lived in Manhattan, very wealthy. Um, they owned all of Chelsea. And they made a lot of money from Newton Apples out in Queens. But they also made money through land development in Saratoga Springs and in Chelsea, Manhattan. He was the one who introduced Italian opera to Manhattan. He spoke multiple languages. He wrote the first Hebrew lexicon, Hebrew dictionary in America so that people could read the scriptures. He was a very religious man in that his father was the Bishop of New York. And he was, a, he was never ordained, but he certainly taught at the General Theological Seminary and he had a very religious um, upbringing. He wrote other works um, of poetry. He published those in 1844. But as you know, this is the only work that continues to, you know, bring him notoriety and fame. I nominated him into the New York State Libraries Hall of Fame this year, and they accepted it. And I'm throwing a very big party in Manhattan on December the 19th. And I have 24 members of the Moore family coming to celebrate that event. So, you know, I spent 10 years writing this book and I spent a lot of time looking into Moore. And uh, I think he was a very kind man, a very generous man. I think he was a very honest man. And the fact that he said that he wrote it and signed his name to it, I think um, is enough for me. And there's no hard evidence he didn't. There's the only suggestion and family stories. So I give it to more. The labor of love of your book, which you started kind of about 10 years ago. And before we were recording, I picked up my, my copy of, of the book and I, I remarked that I was surprised that it was so heavy and was so rich. And so compliments to you and all the work that you, you put into the book itself. What was the journey like for you considering your passion for the poem and the art that illustrated it? Because I have a, a history um, degree and then my postgraduate work was in art, I you know, brought my two loves to this. Um, I also love Christmas. And I just really enjoyed working on the history but there were times i mean any writer would know that that you don't know if you're going to be able to do this because it's so overwhelming you have to keep so much in your head and we're talking 
you know, Western culture, the history of Western culture, you know, from a Christmas perspective from the third century of the Roman Empire. So you're kind of like, you know, kind of writing the history of the world. That's how it felt at times. And I think it was when I got into the art that I really flourished because I have a great passion for art and I really enjoyed finding all these editions and I traveled all over the country to see them and also finding my great loves and, you know, my great, you know, artists that I love, Andy Warhol and people and finding how they came to the poem and expressed it. And it was, that was by far the most fun, you know, finding N.C. Wyeth, as I mentioned, Lion Decker, um, all these great artists who love this poem and, and shared it um, in either their commercial work or in their fine art or in their illustrations. And, and I started collecting the poem too, because I wanted to see the books, you know, up close and personal. I really wanted to see how they were put together, not just, you know, images. So I have a small collection now myself. Well, the book was published last year. You mentioned it in September 2022 and is now getting more attention because of the anniversary of the poem. It's, two, it's hitting 200 years this year. What has been the reception you've received so far? Well, it's really, really fun to work on something that everybody knows. So everybody knows what I'm talking about when I do Twas. I was just at Valencourt in Massachusetts doing a two-day Christmas Kindle Christmas fair. And I mean, I went, 1,200 people came through. And I mean, I didn't meet anybody who didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, everybody knows the poem. And as I mentioned, so many people have this great you know, affection for the poem because it's part of childhood and Christmas, this wonderful time of the year when we celebrate peace and love and generosity and family and traditions. And, and I just really enjoy seeing primarily older gentlemen who read it to their children, their grandchildren, and just come up to me and see my book. And you can just see how much it means to them. And, and I just think that's wonderful. I think it also secures the future of the poem because if they're reading to their grandchildren, like my dear friend, Peter Hayes, you know, who's here, He's taking out a copy that his mother read to him to his grandson, who's two, right? And so this is how it'll live on, you know, through the love of having a, you know, a grandparent read it to them and, and share it. It's just, you know, part of their Christmas DNA, you know, it's, it's great. So I'm sure it'll have 200 more years. Well, during your work, you've visited locations important to the poem, and I'm sure you spent countless hours researching. For example, you've been to Manhattan, visited Moore's Place of Work gone to the New York Historical Society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I'm sure. Were there any surprises that you encountered during your research that were incredibly interesting? Well, I would say that the day that I found out that there actually was a photograph of Clement Seymour in the Columbia archives, and that was thrilling because I had never, I hadn't seen a picture of him. I'd only seen the portraits. There's about seven or eight portraits of him. And to be able to see him playing chess um, with his daughter was really really fun and then i visited upstate new york constableville where they have a museum a constable house um, and it's a relative of clemency moore's and his chess pieces are there so here you have this photograph of the man and then i was able to see the chess pieces so all of that was really really fun i think the biggest surprises had to be just finding additions and people like maxfield parish who you just wouldn't associate with christmas art <laughs> And he did do St. Nicholas for Knickerbocker for Washington Irving. So, you know, it, it was just that journey of the art. And it was really hard to sort of pick an artist where I couldn't find they touched Christmas. So, you know, that goes from, as I mentioned, Lion Decker, Norman Rockwell. I mean, N.C. Wyeth, Andrew Wyeth. I mean, Andrew Wyeth in the open window, um, you know, 
has a red and white stocking hanging off the bedpost. I mean, you know, those are the finds that were great. And uh, yeah, it was a really, I miss working on the book because I had so much fun doing it. It was great. Like you said, it's something that everyone knows, as opposed to like a history book that's very obscure that really no one understands. Everyone has picked this poem up and picked up a version of the illustrations. It's become so universal. We're going to be unpacking for Christmas soon, hopefully. I'm very much like, uh, let's let's start celebrating Christmas after Halloween. My wife is in the camp that we have to wait until after Thanksgiving. So, uh, uh-huh. But the book is in uh, our garage and I'm looking forward to getting our copy out of the poem. Always fun to see people that like to live two months of the year in Christmas spirit. I um, I was in Massachusetts last year at the Mayflower Society's Parade on, Christ- on Thanksgiving Day and I was so surprised because the very next morning after everybody had cleaned up their turkey you know, or their Thanksgiving meals and put on their dishwashers, they must have put on their jackets and run outside because there were inflated reindeer, there were wreaths, and it was November the 24th. I thought, wow, these people really get into the spirit of Christmas the minute they can, right? It was great. Well, in addition to the surprise of, of seeing a picture of him, were there any other favorite parts of the book that you could share? I pulled his will and I found there were three desks and at the time of his death. And so we don't know which one. So if you go to Newport, Rhode Island, they have one of his desks on display. You know, it's kind of where he wrote it. And then if you go to New York and Manhattan, the New York historical side, there's another desk. And then if you go to Pennsylvania, there's another desk. So those are the kind of fun things, right? To go to put those pieces together and to write about it. And I think it was just the uh, collecting all the editions was great. And I, I guess one of the most interesting things of all was discovering that Jonathan O'Dell, who was Clemency Moore's godfather, he was uh, the one who decoded all the communication between Andre and uh, Benedict Arnold during the defection affair during the American Revolution. And he had to escape and leave to um, England. But the oldest edition of the poem is on paper, watermarked 1824, and it's up in Canada, written in the hand of Mary O'Dell. So that those are the kind of things that were really surprising because we don't know how she got her we don't know how she got a copy of it or she heard it from somebody but it's kind of an interesting thing and then finding the four editions that are handwritten by Moore they're worth between two hundred fifty thousand and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars three of them are in museums and one one's in California actually at the Huntington and the other one is uh up in Rochester, and then another one is in New York, and the fourth one's in private in a private collection, and the fifth one we don't know where it is. But um, the Huntington does have one. I do not know if they have if they have it on display for the bicentennial. I did reach out to them, but I haven't heard back. But I know Rochester's not displaying theirs because they couldn't find the insurance money for it. But which is kind of sad. But um, maybe the Huntington is. Well, the great thing about doing Christmas projects or writing books about Christmas or publishing is that Christmas comes every year. So I'll be on this tour for a few years. I mean, this tour right now is a bit crazy. It's a hundred events in 50 days. I'm on day six and uh, pretty well in new England, um, Manhattan, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Ohio. I'm off to Toledo next week. And then I'm into Delaware and then I'm back into Manhattan and then into Rhode Island for a week. And, uh, and then back into New York, in Troy, New York, we're going to have about 25,000 people gathering on December the 3rd to try and set the world record for the most number of people reading it. Um, so there's some really fun events going on. I, I I guess you could call me the cheerleader because I'm the one who kind of decided to take this on 10 years ago when I realized it was turning 200 and I've been championing it. And I, 
I've come up with all these events for all these museums and, and locations. And, and I've been really thrilled to do it. I've just been sort of astounded that other people <laughs> haven't been doing it as well. So I've encouraged everybody to get involved. Well, the book was published by your own publishing house. So what other projects are you currently working on or thinking about? Well, as I mentioned, I'm 65 and um, I don't know what else I'm going to publish. I mean, if something else came along really important, I might. But, um, you know, there comes a time in your career where you have to sort of think, you know, what do you, what do you want to spend your time doing? And I'll have to be very careful what I do. Um, and I, I really have enjoyed my smoking um my smoke-free campaign with kids and and this whole Twas Night Before Christmas. I've worked on other projects for drug prevention. I've written a couple of books on drug prevention. So it is kind of my area of interest. So in those fields, I, I think. Um, and, and I think also, like, sometimes as an entrepreneur and as a publisher, you know, you need to see a good idea. It has to have some marketability to it. And and so, you know, I, I have now thanks to this project discovered i found one of the editions that i don't think anybody has ever seen it's in a vault of the moore family i found the vault thankfully <laughs> i know who has it and so now i may be able to get um to probably publish this wonderful edition that his daughter illustrated in 1855 there's only one copy in the world and uh, that would be really fun to reproduce and republish because it's such a important edition of the poem um, so I may do that, but we'll have to see. But I just found that that relative, and I I asked, do you have the do you have all the portraits that are in these you know archives I've not seen mentioned and seen? And she said, I do. And I went, okay, great. It, you know, in this day and age, I mean, there's 1,700 books published in America every day, so you have to be very careful, right, when you're publishing what you do because you know it takes a lot of money and effort to get anything to happen to work, right? Very, very competitive. And I really have to applaud Barnes & Noble. They bought thousands of my book last year, really supported me, which, you know, is really hard to achieve. And I was really thrilled. And and uh, a lot of independent bookstores, too. It's been really great to see them embrace my book. So, yeah, it's, it's not an easy business. I mean, children's books is not easy, you know. But my book won eight book awards, the Smoke Free Edition. It won the Benjamin Franklin for the best cover for a children's title in 2012, which was great. Um, so, but it's, it's, you know, publishing, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very competitive field, especially in children's literature. One of this show's goals is to connect with different people and Christmas and the entire holiday season, whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or something else has a very special way of, of doing this. How do you think that Twas the Night has made Christmas and the holidays more inclusive? I think that was what, that's exactly what Clement Seymour set out to do and Washington Irving. Because in the 1820s in New York, it was very much Twelfth Night, a lot of rowdiness, um, a lot of violence, actually, this time at that time of the year, a lot of drinking. And there was a real push to try and bring it inside to make it more merry and jolly and family oriented. They sort of looked back to their heritage and sort of, especially Washington Irving, looked at the Dutch heritage and thought, you know, we can make something of this, maybe romanticize, you know, romanticize it, you know, fictionalize it in, to some extent. But they really, there was a concerted effort to do something to make it so that the holidays weren't violent and the children could be a part of it. And uh, I mean, they were shooting off guns and things. It was, it was really quite something in, in, in New York. So, uh, and I think they achieved this. So the, this poem may have been a bit of a collaborative work between Julian Verplank and John Pintard. Washington Irving had written Knickerbocker, you know, years earlier, a decade earlier. And he mentioned St. Nicholas, you know, flying around the skies of Manhattan in a wagon. So, 
you know, this really is Knickerbocker and Washington Irving's, you know, brainchild in a way. There's 25 references to St. Nicholas in Manhattan in that book. But then Fenmore Cooper comes to it too, James Fenmore Cooper, because he talks about Santa Claus and he names the reindeer before Moore. He talks about the reindeer. So, or his horses are named Dunder and Blitz and that's what, that's what it is. So it's, um, it was, you know, as I said, a concerted effort. I think what's so important about the poem, and I think it really goes to its longevity, is this issue of naughty or nice. This poem does not have a birch and rod. There's no threat of punishment. There's no concept of if you're good, you'll get something. If you're bad, you won't. It comes back to Clement Seymour's Christian understanding, right? That it's benevolent and kind, and, and justice is really not up to any of us. It's up to you know, a higher being in Clement Seymour's case. So it's... um. You know, Santa Claus is a generous character who gives for all. And I think, you know, children must have embraced it then when they were still, you know, beating up children. <laughs> so, you know, in this day and age, we don't beat up our children. Um, but back then, the, you know, the birch and rod, the strap, you know, the threat of being hurt. I mean, in this poem, it even says there's nothing to dread. So it is a, it's an incredibly inclusive poem. You know, it, it, it's for everybody and it's kindness and at the very heart of Christian thought, which is generosity of spirit and you know it's not up to us to judge other people it's up to the their own wherewithal to know their take responsibility for their own behavior and you know i i do take some exception to the elf on the shelf in that you know the idea of spying on children or reporting behavior i think that this poem does the opposite it's really you know kind and and if you've done something that you're not proud of it's really up to you to resolve that with yourself <laughs> you know you don't need an elf thinking on you shocks me how popular Elf on the Shelf is and I just find that incredible right um I'm not going to buy one for my granddaughter because I just think I love the school that one should take responsibility for your own actions (laughs) so no it's funny when you were describing this a little bit a couple minutes ago I was exactly thinking of Elf on the Shelf and how it's not in our household I don't believe in it I, I don't like the message it it conveys it is the antithesis of this poem right Um, it is because this poem is about like generosity uh goodwill and that that's a universal message as opposed to someone's watching you you need to do the right thing all the time there's very much like a heavy hand whereas the poem is very kind and gentle and, and honest elf on the shelf is definitely the not the appropriate way of of thinking of the holiday spirit and this whole naughty or nice kind of, it was before twas because of the birch and rod and, you know, St. Nick used to come with a character that was scary and, you know, and, and the idea of being beaten. But it came back in in the 1860s when Thomas Nast introduced naughty or nice lists. And the idea had sort of crept back into it, into the whole Christmas Eve story with Santa Claus, you know, naughty or nice. And it's in song, some of the lyrics, some of the illustrators, you know, but it's not in this poem. And, and I don't think it would have survived. I mean, I can't imagine Michelle Obama reading this poem from the White House to a bunch of children and with the threat of being beaten up if you weren't good. I mean, I, 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 or any kind of repercussion, right? So I mean, it just wouldn't have survived. It wouldn't be here. It would have been changed. It just wouldn't it wouldn't work in this century. So I think Clement Moore, he had nine children, as I mentioned. He was a, from everything I've read, he was a very loving father and grandfather. And I think that he purposely did that. To, and I think it comes from Christian Christian concept of, you know, take responsibility for yourself. And that's a Christian concept. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that you, you know, believe in God in the sky or, or anything literal. But the poetic idea here is that Christian values would be 
take responsibility for your own actions and it's not up to someone else to judge you. And I think that that's really important in this day and age. Um, as we see some of our cultural values being challenged, I think it's really, really, really important to stand up for them. And I think that this poem is um, part of that in a way, without getting too political here or getting into anything too. I think children embrace this poem because it's magical thinking, creative, but it's also really exciting. I mean, sadness is going to come and the reindeer are flying and the father jumps out of bed to the windows and it's all excitement and fun and, and it's great right so i think children really enjoy it for that aspect of it it's um and i think this whole thing it's like linus in the pumpkin patch or jiminy cricket sitting on the rock right it's this hope and belief and trust this wonderful faith you know that this is going to happen and it does you do get christmas presents right and we try our very best to make sure all children get something you know with lots of lots of charities and i think the girl guides have missed the boat completely because they've forgotten how much goodwill and charity Santa Claus entices out of people this time of the year. I mean, the Santa Claus funds do an awful lot of good. And just like in Christmas Carol, where we need to be reminded at this time of the year of charity work. Um, but we do need to be reminded. And at Christmas time, I mean, so many toy drives and Santa Claus, Santa Claus empty stocking funds. And right. So many people get involved in char charity. It's just the time of the year that we want to make sure all children are given, you know, something. And I mean, I'm sure Clemency Moore would say, let's do it all year long, because when you read um, accounts of his life later in life, he was so generous that people would knock on his door and he'd give $20 to anybody, really. He was a very wealthy man, but they, um, they'd come every day if they needed money to his home. And he'd always give them something. So, you know, I think he, when he wrote this uh, valedictorian address for Columbia when he, when he graduated, it was called Gratitude. And we've lost that, which is very sad. So I would love to read that. But, you know, I think that's the other great big lesson of gratitude of what we have and how we can share it with other people, right? So it's a very great time of the year. So the last two questions, and then I'll let you go back to your 100 event sure. tour. Which you're, what was it? You're on day five? <laughs> day six. Day six. Day six. Okay. Day six. What community have you found in researching and writing this book? Well, the collectors, for sure. I mean, the people who have a thousand, there's lots of them out there who, who collect the poem. And that's been fun because you can see other editions. And, uh, you know, the, I'm a grandparent. So people of my age who enjoy it and, and do. There was one woman in Maryland who did 300 quilts. They, she got a bunch of quilters around America and they've done an exhibit of 300 quilts based on the poem. So, you know, finding people like that. But I did a podcast last year and the gentleman was um, Jewish and it, it was a wonderful podcast. He didn't know the poem and he went to his dentist and he was saying, hey, I'm going to be interviewing this woman about this poem. And, and he started going around and everyone he talked to knew the poem and shared. It. And he he ended up we ended up getting the Yiddish edition for him. And so it was really fun to sort of see things like that happen where you could sort of excite some new people towards it. But um, I I also love reading it to children. I always have fun. and. It's always interesting to see, are they going to be engaged? Are they going to sort of lose their interest? And I was up at the Fenmore, the Fenmore Museum in upstate New York, and I was doing a, a reading for some three- and four-year-olds, a preschool class. And the director of the museum handed out a bunch of jingle bells right before I started. These little, lovely little jingle bells for all the children's a gift. And I thought, oh, wow. Now we've got, you know, 20 three to four year olds with jingle bells i've lost them i'm not going to get their attention at all and i was underneath this beautiful christmas tree and it was all great and, and i started reading and they all they all quieted down and were engaged and i thought wow this poem really is quite magical 
because, you know, they put away their jingle bells and they just were fixed on what I was talking about. So or reading. So that was really fun. Uh, it's always great. I mean, it's a, it's a really lovely thing to work on. It's it's wonderful. When you think about the next 25, 50 or even 100 years from now, what impact do you still think Twas the Night will have on Christmas and the holiday season? I think we need to keep it going. And I think there's a bit of a challenge to that. You know, you see things in school saying no Santa Claus up on any windows or no one's allowed to sing Christmas carols and no one's allowed to, you know, I think there'll be a pushback on people who want to turn winter back into the color of gray and remove cultural heritage that's been part of American Christmas traditions for 200 years or two, you know, more than 200 years. I think it's really important that we keep traditions. They're really, really part of our, our, our fabric of our identity. I know like with St. Nicholas, like the gold balls I mentioned, you know, we put oranges in our stockings and gold coins. It comes from the third century of the Roman Empire. These threads of culture, these shared meanings we have in art and in culture and in literature are really important to keep and to um, continue. They're part of our tapestry. And I think when you tear it apart or rip it apart or pull threads out, it falls apart. So we, so people like myself, who's a historian and an, a lover of art and literature, it's really important to keep them alive because they're part of our tapestry. And so I think that's going forward, Clemency Moore and this poem have a place there in culture and Christmas. And I think along with so many other works, they need to be preserved and continued. And if they come under attack, we need to defend them. And that may be a bit political, but I, I'm a bit of a political being. And I think that we need to defend our culture. So I plan to do that. So final question is, how do you celebrate Christmas? Well, I celebrate Christmas by doing the tree like everyone else. We do Christmas Eve and we definitely put coins in the stockings and walnuts and all kinds of things and lots of presents. I'm a big fan of buying presents without a list. So I always buy people things that I think they'll like. And I also, um, I'm very much into Christmas dinner, which is Charles Dickens and Washington Irving. I mean, they're the ones who did it. They they made that popular and I support Christmas dinner. I think it's a really great family event. And we've always had other people at our table who are, you know, alone at the time of the year and they're always welcome. So I mean, it's very traditional Christmas and I, I don't read Christmas Carol. I watch Alistair Sim because I happen to think that that's a phenomenal way. I mean, this year I did, last year I did see Charles Dickens's great, great grandson reading Christmas Carol. Um, he tours America doing that. And that was fun, but I, I actually really like the Alistair Sim version. So, and I watched the Grinch. I spoke at Springfield museum last year. I'm going back there this year, Grinch's museum or Dr. Seuss's museum. So I think, I think the Grinch is also a really important poem for children or story for children to have in their repertoire. It's about redemption, right? And it's great. Pamela, thank you for writing such a wonderful book, for sharing your passion for the poem and its history, and for coming on the podcast, despite our technical difficulties. I greatly appreciate it. No, it was fun. And I um, I hope to be back in California. I'll probably, maybe you and I can meet up at the Huntington. That sounds great. I love that. My many thanks to Pamela for coming on the show. I enjoyed this conversation, especially during the holiday season, 
because Pamela and I focused on the messages that unite us. Love, kindness, and generosity. It is a universal message whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, or another tradition. Let us carry this special spirit of the season into 2024. For more information, please visit twasthenightbook.com and follow Pamela on Instagram at twasthenight underscore art and history for the latest news and updates. This marks the 49th episode of the Crown City podcast and the last for 2023. Thank you for all your love and support this past year, and I will see you in 2024 with some really big plans in store. Continuing our collaboration, the featured song is All Right Here by the passing abased wife and husband duo The Next Doors. All Right Here is from Mika and Russell's debut album Linda Vista. As a special gift for Hanukkah, Mika and Russell released the beautiful original Hebrew version of All Right Here, which is titled Tamid Kerovin. Please follow them on social media and at nextdoorsmusic.com for more information. There are many people that help keep this show going. I want to thank my Patreon sponsors. I really appreciate your continued support. Second to my wife for being so patient and understanding, even if she never hears this. And to all that listen, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the show or support it through direct underwriting or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, AG1, BetterHelp, or a meal kit. But if Huckberry or Ella Bean are looking, please let me know. I'd love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well. Happy holidays to all and to all a good night. And as always, I will see you around town. Pasadena, California. This is a show about. I've done this once or twice. From Pasadena, California. This is a show about building a community for all. I don't feel well.